So the first reading today comes from Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18 and going through to verse 25. It can be found on page 2 of the Church Bibles. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave the names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused caused the men to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The second reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting at verse 7 and going through to verse 12, and it can be found on page 541 of the Church Bibles. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I deprived myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, the one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily easily broken. Well, we've been looking at uh, a new series. We started last week. We titled it Chasing Life. And we're exploring this question uh, from the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, just a really brief recap. The book of Ecclesiastes is a pretty strange book. Uh, Someone uh, from our congregation read it recently and came up to me and said that they were actually quite surprised that it was in the Bible. Uh, It is quite uh, cynical and confrontational. Uh, It's written mostly by a guy who goes by the title of the teacher or the preacher. Uh, he's there and uh, he has a favourite word and you all knew that word as I mentioned it before. It's the word hevel. Okay, the H is guttural and the B is pronounced as a V. So one, two, three, hevel. And he pronounces in chapter one, verse two, that everything is a hevel of hevels. And he, he says hevel five times in one short verse. He sums up life, the universe, and everything, not as 42, but as hevel. And that's a word that uh, our English translations will translate as meaningless or vanity. Uh, and it has this idea of something that is elusive and passing away. It lacks substance. So a breath or a vapour, a mist. So going out into the morning mist and trying to catch it in your hands, you you just can't do it. It moves, it goes as soon as the sun shines upon it. Whatever is transient, profitless, 
one of my favourite words, ephemeral, uh, vanity. Ecclesiastes is such a book that Barry Webb described it as thoroughly irritating, but at the same time almost mesmeric in its appeal. It draws us towards us by mirroring the perplexity we all feel as we grapple with life. The kind of cynical tension, the wondering if there can be purpose, can be meaning, that we face is what he faced. Because he was a man who searched pretty much for the same thing that we search for. It's there in verse two, verse 3 of chapter 2. I wanted to see, the teacher writes, what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their life. He wants to find the good life, not just kicking back and relaxing, but a life of substance, of meaning, of purpose and joy. A life that he can look back on and say, that was a life well lived, a life that had substance. But he comes up short. Hevel of hevels. Everything is hevel. We search as he searches. We're looking for that goal, that good life, and we seek it in different ways. Like climbing a mountain, you can choose different ridges, different paths up to the same summit. And some of us will choose power and control. Some of us will choose relationships. Some of us will choose work and meaning. Some of us will choose sex and pleasure. There's lots of different paths that people walk, but seeking the same goal. Lots of different roads to the same destination. Today, we're looking at the topic of relationships. Of seeking a life, a good life, through connection with others. That desire to belong. The little narrative that happens in our head is the one that says, if only I had this, or because I do have the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the circle of friends, the loving family, the husband, the wife, that is the path to a life of significance, a life of meaning, a life that I feel good about, I feel content about. But it is difficult to find, isn't it? So I want to ask a question. How can we have meaningful relationships in a world where hevel is everywhere? How can we have relationships of substance, relationships that bless us, but also bless those we are in relationship with? How can we do this in a world subject to frustration? Four headings. They're on your notes. If you are taking notes, why we crave relationships, why we get them so wrong, why we need a better friend, and how Jesus transforms our relationships. So let's kick off. Why we crave relationships. Well, do we? Do you crave relationships? Are you one of these people that just longs to connect? Can I suggest, I think everyone, everyone craves relationships. Even the introverts amongst us, we want relationships. People need people. 
we are actually built physically for relationships. The way human bodies are made, Genesis 2 reminds us, is that we are designed to relate one to another. This is even on a cellular level. In our brains, we have little neurons called mirror neurons. And these are designed to help us get in touch with what other people are feeling. So on a basic and anatomical level, we're designed for a relationship. On a cellular level, we're designed for a relationship. And you know what? Relationships work. Health benefits. So according to a 2010 review of research, the effect of social ties on lifespan is twice as strong as that of exercising. It's better to have good friends than to exercise regularly. And the equivalent to that of quitting smoking. It makes massive difference to your health. We are built for relationship. And in case you haven't noticed, all you need to do is, you know, go to the movies. What are 99% of the movies about? Relationships. What was that abomination of a television show that started this week? What is it? The whole marriage thing? Yeah, some of you watched it, didn't you? You did? Are you going to confess? Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's a few. <laughs> I didn't go for that one, but I kind of like the Chinese dating show one. I find that quite perverse. Um, but whatever it is, share an office with the staff that I work with, and inevitably these kind of things come up. We live in a society that is saturated with relationships. We crave connections. And the Bible actually tells us that not only is this good, but it's actually the way that God made us. So Ecclesiastes 4. You know, the preacher doesn't actually say many things are good. But one thing he doesn't put the big stamp of hevel on is relationships. And the one thing that he slams in the passage that we heard today is the lack of them. What's he say? I saw something meaningless, hevel, under the sun. A man all alone. He had neither son nor brother, nor there was an end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is hevel, a meaningless business. The lack of relationships, the preacher says, is hevel. And he goes on. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. So working together pays off. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls with no one to help them up. Two can help each other out. If two, can lie down, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? He's thinking about traveling in the wilderness of Judea. It's kind of like being out back when the sun sets. One thing you will notice is that the temperature drops rapidly. And travellers used to lie close to each other and share body heat before they had, you know, minus six sleeping bags and all that kind of thing. It could mean the difference between life and death, having someone else there. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands, strands is not quickly broken. The preacher, the teacher basically says, 
life is too hard to make it work by yourself. And he says, as two are better than one, three is actually better than two. More relationships, better. But before we get too excited that thinking, hey, wow, this is a side to the preacher we haven't seen before. He reminds us a couple of chapters later that everyone dies. The living know that they will die and the dead know nothing. They have no further reward. Even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their friendship, their relationships, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part of anything that happens under the sun. Death ends all relationships. There is a dark side to the preacher. He tells us that if you live long enough, you will bury everyone you care about. There is a dark side, a transience, a hevel that is still there in relationships. But as the preacher, as the teacher talks about life under the sun, we can actually take a step above the sun, under the heavens, and we can see that God has bigger pictures for human relationships. Genesis 2, Eliza read it for us. Let's look at it. Just remind yourself, Genesis 1, we've seen creation macro level. Genesis 2, it narrows in on one particular place, Eden, and one and then two people. Okay, we get the micro view. We've moved from the macro to the micro. Do you remember God's appraisal of his work at the end of each day? He looked at what he'd done and he said, it is good. Gives it a thumbs up. Sin doesn't come into the story until chapter 3. But in 2.18, we get what is quite surprising when you think about it. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now, think about it. Adam is there in a perfect place. He is unmarred by sin. He has a perfect relationship with God that the the Genesis narrative talks about as the Lord walking in the garden. They get to hang out together. But God actually says that man plus God only is actually not the way it was meant to work. That not only are we meant to have a relationship, a living, active, vital relationship with God, we are meant to have a relationship with others. And so we have the story of the creation of Eve. Now, verse 25 has that little bit. They were naked and they knew no shame. There is a relationship that is captured there where Adam and Eve are completely open to one another. They are fully known by one another. They are accepted by one another. And you see, Adam's response to Eve is one of joy. He delights. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's excited because this is a friend. This is a partner for him. And now we're talking, I think, in Genesis 2, not just about marriage. Obviously, this passage gets picked up to talk about marriage. But it also, I think, talks about friendship. And a friend, they think it's great. (laughs) A friend is someone who knows you and you know, who accepts you and you accept, and I think who delights in you and in whom you delight. And we're made, for those of us who are married, we need to be reminded sometimes, we're made for more than just marriage. 
Marriage is one human relationship, but we're actually made for a wider connection. God in himself has made us like himself. As the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in Trinity relate, so we are made for relationship. It is core to our humanity. A guy by the name of Paul Waddell says, Friendship is the need we must satisfy. It's a fundamental condition of our nature for an authentic human life to be possible. He goes so far as to actually say to cut yourself off from other people, even if you had, which we can't, a perfect relationship with God, even if we had that perfect fellowship unmarred by sin, there would be something lacking. God in Genesis 2.18, it is not good to be alone. We are made for relationship. That's what the Bible tells us. So why do we get it so wrong? Because if you think about those things, if a friend is someone that you know fully and they know you, you accept and they accept you, you delight in and they delight in you. Do you have any friends? If we're honest, could we be that friend for someone else? To know, to accept, to delight. Is there someone that we could say that person is that for us? I think as we look at it, the best we have is glimpses. We capture it at just moments, but it's gone. Like the sun through the clouds on a cloudy day, all of a sudden you get a ray of light and you go, wow, and then the cloud comes back. And then it appears a little bit later and a little bit, little gleams. But our relationships, I think, are more about hiding, about shame, about fear. You know, that fear that says, if they truly knew me, would they accept me? We find ourselves engaging in relationships conditionally. I'll give to you if I get. But when that no longer is being met, we disengage. We withdraw when it gets too hard. Eric Clapton sang a song. It's an old song, but many of you will know it. Nobody knows you when you're down and out. Nobody knows you because it's too hard. I don't get from you when you're on the bottom. We make our relationships so often conditional. And there's a whole group of people out there that would give us the thumbs up. It's wisdom. A little self-help book on how to have winning relationships. I'll read it for you in case you can't read that. I want you to think about the irony of what I'm just about to read to you as well. The people we surround ourselves with, he writes, either raise or lower our standards. They either help us to become the best version of ourselves or encourage us to become lesser versions of ourselves. We become like our friends. No man becomes great on his own. No woman becomes great on her own. The people around them help to make them great. We all need people in our lives who raise our standards, remind us of our essential purpose and challenge us to become the best version of ourselves. Do you spot the irony? Hang out with people better than you. 
But if they're better than you, why do they want to hang out with you? Because you're worse than them and you're just going to pull them down. It's a utilitarian, it's a functional view on relationships. Maybe that's not you, but parents, is it what we do for our kids? We want them to hang out with the right kids. We want to send them to the right schools. I actually had someone once tell me they wanted to send their kids to one of the more expensive schools in Sydney. Why? Because there they will form relationships that will help them to get ahead in business in future years. You think, is that what friendship is about? Is that what we are reduced to doing? So why do we get it wrong? No surprises. The Bible tells us that at the heart of the problem of every issue is what Scripture calls sin. Our rejection of God as God, our placing ourselves at the centre. I want to put myself at the centre. I want to make the universe revolve around me, and that includes every relationship that I am in. I want them to serve my ends, to build me up. And you will want to do the same thing. We relate in a me-centric kind of way. Because we have shut God out, because we have displaced him from the center, our relationships bear the scars. Genesis 3, not only is humanity estranged from God, but they are estranged from one another. They are divided against each other. Relationships serve our ends because of sin. And the problem with that is that we make too much of them and we also make too little of them. We make too much of them because we actually seek out of relationships things that we should only seek in God. We seek from our friends, from our families, from our spouses, from our children. We seek that affirmation, that validation, that security, that purpose that they cannot deliver. And so what we end up with is either we break them with our expectations or when they fail to meet our expectations, we ourselves are broken. You all probably know of people who you'd say they live through their children, but their children sometimes don't kind of meet the standards, don't live up to the parental expectations. And so they themselves are broken because their children haven't given them what they've been looking for. They make too much of those relationships. Sometimes, though, we make too little. We withdraw. We hide. Maybe you had a car park miracle today. You know, you get out of the car, you've had a horrible week. Things have been going terrible, but you bring yourself together, put the smile on, Someone says, oh, good to see you. How are you going? How was your week? Oh, yeah, great, fine. Everything's wonderful. Because if you actually said what is truly in your heart, what is truly going, you think they don't want to hear that. They won't accept me. They won't love me. They won't delight in me if I actually show them the truth. And so we live with a superficial kind of veneer. You see it. You see it amongst adults. You see it amongst teenagers. That kind of put the smile on, not let them know what I truly feel so I can fit in and have this pseudo-relationship. 
Paul Tripp says it like this, and it's scathing. He says, we live in a network of, listen to these three horrible words, terminally casual relationships. He's talking to Christians. We live with the delusion that we know one another, but we really don't. We call our easygoing, self-protective and often theological platitudinous conversations fellowship. But they seldom reach the threshold of true fellowship. We get it wrong because sin wants us at the centre. And I want to use you and you want to use me and we are afraid. And so we settle for a poor imitation. We actually need a better friend. We actually need someone who can make a difference. Because I could tell you, you know, this is the symptom. This is the problem. You guys have got to try harder. So don't put on the face. Just be real with one another. You guys have got to hang in there with each other. I could appeal to your wills. And I could say, you've got to do better. And you could go out thinking, I've got to do better. But it doesn't actually work might work for a little bit, but you feel the burden, don't you? Pogo, the cartoon, you might know the phrase, famous for this one phrase. We have met the enemy and he is us. We need someone to get alongside us and provide us with a solution to an issue that we cannot help ourselves with. To put it in Ecclesiastes 4 terms, we've fallen and we have no one to help us up. We're alone and cold and we're freezing to death and there is no one to be with us. We are under attack and we are going to be overwhelmed. We need a better friend. We need someone who can help us with our issue of sin. Jesus says it like this John 15:13 Greater love has no one than this to lay down one life for one's friends we need someone who can do this but you know the amazing thing about the gospel is that Jesus didn't die for his friends Romans 5:10 while we were still God's enemies Jesus died to make his enemies his friends The poet Byron said this of friendship. He said, friendship is love without his wings. Friendship is love without his wings. Jesus deliberately clipped his wings. No wings for Jesus. Jesus, our friend, the friend of sinners, stood for us when we wouldn't stand for him. Knew us to the sinful depths and was rejected for us so that we might be accepted. Our friend stood for us to take the penalty, to pay the price that we could not. He was disowned so that we might be welcomed in. He became an object of scorn and ridicule 
flogged, spat upon, beaten, mocked. So that we might be delighted in. So that through faith in him, as our sins are washed, the Father, the Son and the Spirit might delight in us because of the work of our friend for us. Brothers and sisters, do we see the wonder of the better friend? The one who loved us so much and loves us still. Because Matthew 28 says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We have a friend who knows us who knows us better than we even know ourselves, knows the dark things that we will not even admit to ourselves, the things we explain, we rationalize, he sees clearly. He knows us and he accepts us and he delights in us because through faith in him, the Father sees us as washed clean. We are sons and daughters of the king, delighted in by God himself because of the perfect work of Christ. Jesus, our better friend, he transforms every relationship. He transforms our relationship with God. Most of us will know this. He breaks sin's power. He pays sin's penalty. He returns God to the center. He gives us his spirit that makes it possible, makes it possible for us to live as God's friends because we live on the basis of what Christ has done and not our performance. Makes it possible for our father to delight over us, to rejoice over us. And as we live in that friendship, the friendship that the Son has made possible with the Father. All our other friendships can be reordered. All our other relationships can be put back in their right place. We can make less of them. Because we don't need them for validation, for affirmation, to build up ourselves. We don't need our friendships to make ourselves feel good, to feel safe, to feel secure. We don't need that because we have that. We are known. We are accepted. We are delighted in because of our friend, our better friend, Jesus. We can rest in his love. We actually don't need that affirmation. We don't need to crave to fill that hole because Jesus has filled it to overflowing if only we will see it, if only we will rest in that, see the wonder of our friend's love, knowing that we don't have to hide, knowing that he will never turn us away. No matter what it is that you have done, Christ knows it completely and in him you are fully accepted. And it lets us not detach from human relationship and say, well, I've got everything I need in Jesus. I don't need you. 
No, we're made for each other. We do need each other. But it lets us do those relationships better. It lets us not only make less of our relationships, but make more. Because it actually lets us invest in people without a thought of, what do I get back? Because our needs have been met in Christ. We can hang in there in the difficult times. We can hang in there when our friends hit down and out. We can give sacrificially because we know what it is that God has sacrificed for us. We can be open. We can actually let people in under the surface. We can drop the smile and the veneer. Because all of us here know that none of us are accepted before God on the basis of having it all together. We can do away with the pretense, with the rubbish. We can actually be real. Because, hey, wow, I'm a sinner too. And so are you. And God knows us. He has dealt with that. He delights in us. And so if you turn away, I can rest in the fact that he never will. We can delight in others who maybe we don't find are delightful. Because I tell you what, God didn't find us delightful as we screamed for Jesus' crucifixion. As the sin in our heart deposed God. From his rightful place. But because we have a better friend. The Lord Jesus. It actually lets us. Delight in those. Who we may not naturally delight in. Because. He delights in us. Look at your friend. It's only as we have the better friend. The Lord Jesus. Can we truly be blessed in relationship as well as be a blessing. I'd love to say lots more. There's so much more we could say. If you want to talk more about it, grab me afterwards. But brothers and sisters, can I encourage you? Look for your friend. Rejoice in your friend. Trust in your friend. Delight in him because he delights in you. Let's pray. Father, we are sorry for the times that we have sought to find life through relationships apart from you. We have sought to fill that hole with poor substitutes, to find the friendship that we crave in frail, flawed human beings, ourselves frail and flawed and not in our perfect friend, the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to see how beautifully you have met our need. What a wonderful friend Jesus is. And help us to live, live in that friendship, knowing that he will never leave, he will never forsake, that he is always with us, always for us, 
knowing us, accepting us, delighting us. Lord, we pray that we would find true friendship in you. And so that would enable us to be true friends, true friends for one another and for all who you bring across our paths. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.